The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So, okay. So, today I would like to um, focus a talk around a particular poem that the Buddha taught. It was a poem that he seemed to have been eager to have his students, people, memorize. Because there's accounts in the ancient texts of, um, of you know, him helping people memorize the text he'd recited so they'd learn it. And um, it, it was an oral tradition back then in the ancient world, so there was no library you could go to. So if you wanted to have access to teachings and the texts, you had to have memorized them. And uh, so all the suttas, all these discourses were eventually memorized, but many of them were put to memory after he died. Um, But during his lifetime, there's only a particular ones that we have record of that uh, he was actively teaching people to memorize. So I take that to mean that it was really important for the Buddha. And he um, gave, uh, uh, then he explained or gave, gave an analysis of the poem as well. And whether the poem is a poem or whether it's a song is a little bit of a, you know, interpretive exercise. Uh, there was a time when uh, some of the early Western scholars, especially from Sri Lanka, who spoke English, uh, would call these kinds of uh, poems ballads. And uh, sometimes the way they're chanted can sound very much like a, something that we may be associated more with a song or, or a ballad or something. And that helps the memorization of it. The, um, and so this one is called, um, it has an interesting title. I, t- I call it An Auspicious Day. And uh, the word for auspicious, uh, bada, uh, means uh, something like uh, something that is... Uh, Fortunate, something that's wondrous, a blessing, auspicious, and but the word rata, R-A-T-T-A, um, can mean night, and but it, it seems in the ancient world uh, uh, it also meant a day, just like in English, um, uh, daytime. The word day means both daytime and the whole twenty-four hours, but uh, in. Uh, uh, we, uh, so they would count the days by how many nights it's been. And so if you said, if you, said you know, an auspicious night, people understood that in the context it would be a day. So I translate it as an auspicious day. But it's interesting because the word rata uh, is, uh, is a particular uh, grammatical formulation of the word uh, raga, which can mean uh, a, a kind of a passionate attachment. And uh, and so, so one translation that Bhikkhu had in his early translation was an auspicious attachment. <laughs> and uh, so it's a kind of wordplay going on here. So is, is it okay to be attached? Well, if you're attached to this, maybe it isn't too bad. Maybe it helps you to be... If you're attached to healthy things, then as long as it's helping you, it's okay to be attached. But when you realize it's, it's hindering you, that's when we let go of it. And this is a very nice way of understanding attachments. There's a tendency in Buddhism to kind of like 
it's all or nothing. Like if you're attached, let go. You're not supposed to be that way. But uh, rather that, recognize, well, there's often a reason to be attached. It's a reason why people are attached. It's a strategy for something. And maybe sometimes it's not a bad strategy. And so, for example, being attached to your health might be good until the point, especially if you're sick. But then if you're really healthy, if you're excessively attached to the health, at some point you might find that it's actually making you unhealthy because you're kind of so much preoccupied and worried and stressing about it. So, so, the, uh, so an auspicious attachment, if you're going to have an attachment in the Dharma, uh, the one I'm going to read, uh, this would be good. Uh, as long as it's good. And then you let go. So this is, I also, I call this uh, poem uh, the Vipassana Anthem. So uh, for the insight movement for us all, kind of like a, this is, you know, has such a wonderful, special place for us. And uh, so um, there's four verses, four, four stanzas. An auspicious day. Don't chase the past or long for the future. The past is left behind, the future not yet reached. Clearly see phenomena anywhere they appear. Not faltering and not agitated, knowing this, develop the mind. Ardently do what should be done today. Who knows death may come tomorrow. There is no bargaining with mortality and death's great army. Whoever lives thus ardent, active day and night, is, says the peaceful sage, one who has an auspicious day. So um, I think part of the power of this poem is the third stanza verse. Uh, Ardently do what should be done today. Who knows? Death may come tomorrow. There is no bargaining with mortality and death's great army. um, So, um, and here, the lesson of this death contemplation, taking it into uh, seriously, um, is not morbid. It's not kind of, you know, and... uh, and it's not then to live in such a way that you have a better rebirth uh, or something, but rather to take this moment seriously as the place for practice, as a place to be mindful and attentive. And more than that, this is the place to have insight. And, um, and that if you can have insight here, if you're able to live really centered here, as life is being lived in a lived moment, a lived life, and have insight as you go along, then um, this is an auspicious day, says the peaceful sage. Peaceful sage is a word for the title for the Buddha. But the word peaceful is important because um, this is the purpose of this path. This is the purpose of this auspicious practice is so we can discover for ourselves a deep abiding sense of peace. One of the great gifts that we can give the world is to die peacefully, uh, if it's possible, that uh, we, to, to 
it helps people not be afraid of life. It's been lots of studies done that have pointed out that um, something like there's a tendency for uh, the, uh, for the people who are afraid of death to be afraid to live their life fully. And the people who are not afraid of death tend to live a fuller, more engaged life. Exactly how, that to, how to explain that, I don't know, and, but, uh, but it's an interesting correlation. And so, uh, so it starts with this kind of instructions of don't chase the past or long for the future. The past is left behind and the future not yet reached. Uh, one of the lessons that I learned slowly over the years was um, when I thought about the future, imagined the future, uh, planned around the future, had wishes and fears about the future. Um, uh, I had plenty of it for all kinds of situations. And it turned out I had an amazingly poor uh, prediction rate. <laughs> that uh, I would predict, you know, based on some idea of what was going to happen in the future. And so many times it didn't work out that way. It happened differently than I was planned or how I thought or was afraid. And so it slowly dawned on me that I had very bad record. <laughs> and, uh, and even then, it took a long time for that to sink in deeply. And eventually, I realized, oh, I don't know the future. And so I'm not going to be so attached to it or so caught in my prediction. I might take it into account and you know do some modicum of at least bring an umbrella or something. But um, in case... But uh, the, um, uh, it kind of loosened up my, uh, my way I was, I was attached to the future, caught up in the future, concerned about the future. And I discovered, as I learned to let go of that pre-concern, that preoccupation with my future, and I would show up, uh, and um, I discovered that generally, once I'm there in the moment, I generally know how to find my way with it. And that helped me relax even more. And the result of that relaxation was a greater appreciation and willingness just to be with here, with what's going on, be present. So the future is not yet reached, the past is left behind. And, um, you know, I've held on to the past, not want to let go, and not want you know, I hold on to the memories, hold on to the people, hold on to whatever it were, who I was back then. And sometimes it's held me back. Sometimes my self-image of myself was based on who I was in the past, and I'm still trying to prove that or be that, and it's kind of interfered with my ability to be present here in a full way. Don't chase the past or long for the future. So when the Buddha, uh, after he gave this poem, in one of the suttas where it appears in, uh, he then gives an explanation of what it means. And I want to uh, explain that to you if I can, but I would like to do it first with a <clears throat> an analogy. Many years ago, I, I read of a study where some psychologist took um, a um, an actor and to give a talk at some significant conference, and um, and after the, per- the actor gave this talk they would interview the people coming out into the lobby. How was that? How was that? What did you think of that talk? And um, and, uh, 
people would say, that was really great, it was wonderful, it was one of the best things happening at the conference. The thing was that the script the, uh, the actor had been given to read or to present to the conference was nonsense. <laughs> it, it, it didn't make any sense. And so uh, there was something about the actor's delivery, something about the actor, that led people to believe that there was something significant here being told. The article I read about it um, didn't say too much about uh, the actor, but uh, one of the things I, I imagined, I wouldn't be surprised, the actor was probably a tall, white, middle-aged man, uh, kind of a certain kind of person that tends to be given a lot of authority uh, automatically when they show up. Unfortunately, people like me, maybe sometimes. Um, and um, and so... Uh, and perhaps the person had a great melod- melodious voice. It was really enjoyable to listen to them and could speak with great confidence as an actor, right? Like they really knew what they were talking about. And I imagine maybe, that, I could imagine, for example, that maybe they dropped, wor- certain words got repeated. Maybe the word peace got repeated. And, uh, but the sentence didn't make any sense, but people hear the word peace. And so they remind, oh, peace. Oh, yeah, peace. Oh, yeah, peace. And they'd be reminded, and then when they left, they thought, that's what they were left with. Oh, this guy talked about peace. I'm so glad people did it. There's so much conflict. And, um, and uh, so in this scenario, the audience, some of the audience, are making certain things up. First, uh, they're making things up based on appearance. Appearance of who the person is, based on their voice, their sound. And that's just what's being approached, and uh, they're making something up. It, um, maybe the researchers wanted people to make it up, I don't know, you know. But still, the audience was actively involved by their own background and predispositions, making up some idea of who this person was. This is an authoritative person speaking authoritatively. Uh, they were also making up that it was pleasant, enjoyable. Maybe because of the style delivery, maybe the person was animated in a wonderful way, maybe the voice was really pleasant to listen to. And so they were making up this idea, this is a really pleasant event to be here. I really enjoy being here. Was the enjoyment really there? Or how much were we responsible for the creation of it? They had concepts. They made up concepts. Oh, this person knows what he's talking about. This is a great talk. And they were making up these concepts that they were then living in. They also were making up all kinds of reactions and inner things in their mind. They were constructing universes of, um, you, know, I'm, you know, I'm so wonderful, I came out on time to the conference, I paid my, my lots of money for it, and this is a great thing, I can't wait until I go, you know, I don't know what. You know, we're, we're making up a whole story and a little universe of what it means to be there and and how wonderful it is. And, and then probably the knowing of it, the knowing all this, also felt really good. Wow, I'm in the know now. Uh, my first uh, Zen teacher had this way of talking about uh, where Zen, Zen fit into current event, world of current events. And he was, you know, friends with the governor and different people in Washington. And and famous people. And so we were given this feeling as he spoke that uh, our practicing Zen was on the forefront of our culture. 
And it was so good to know this, to be part of this. So that was kind of, you know, it was rather unfortunate. It was actually not so helpful for, um, for our Zen students to be caught in the grip of this kind of thing that being created. So these people, the audience, was creating something. So I hope you under- appreciate that. And um, so we, our minds are creative. The, our minds have an amazing capacity to make things up. And in fact, it needs to. It's doing it all the time. And generally, it's predictive uh, uh, ability to create images and ideas and is relatively good. Otherwise, you wouldn't have made it here today. You do, you do just enough to find here. Um, but, um, but sometimes how we create things gets in the way and causes us problems. So, then this is how the Buddha... He didn't, no, the Buddha didn't know the study, but... Uh, what he said in explaining this, that chase, uh, that um, um, chasing the past, what that means is, uh, some translators translate as reviving the past. What it means is that um, the idea of, of making up ideas of who we were in the past, making up the appearances that we had, making up... Um, you know, I've seen as I've reviewed my life in my old age now. Um, I some I now will make up new ideas of what I was like in the past. You, you know, it, I mean, sometimes I, I tell myself, "Well, now I know better. Now I recognize who I was a long time ago." But do I really? I'm, you know, it's, it's kind of still kind of an appearance, and making up an appearance somehow, and um, and then making up sensations. Uh, you know, things in the past that were unpleasant at the time, now I'm going back, look back, I'm grateful for, and, they're, and I see them as a pleasant event. Or opposite happens. Something that was uh, pleasant now is seen as unpleasant. So this idea of, you know, we are constructing the past. The concepts we have about the past changes, and we make up new ideas, new concepts of it. The fish gets bigger by the telling, right? The new concepts of the fish, they say. And then our reactions and the story-making mind that we live in changes uh, over time about the past. And then our sense of knowing and how with the quality of knowing that happens as we know the past. So the Buddha specified these five different areas that people make things up. And so not chasing the past is, is, means don't make things up about yourself in the past this way. And uh, longing for the future, it's the same thing about the future. Don't make things up about yourself about the future, because you'll get in trouble for it. That's how you get... We, a lot of suffering can come from uh, some fixed idea, this is who I am. I'm this way, I'm supposed to be this way, I should be this way. This is happening to me, I'm a victim to all this, you know, or I'm asserting myself, I'm supposed to have, I deserve things, or... There's a complicated world of self that we create that part of the function of mindfulness is to take a good look at and see, to discover, to really understand how it's working. And then uh, here in the text it goes on and says, clearly see phenomena anywhere they appear. So what this means is um, to stay in the present moment enough that you see what's happening as it's occurring. The, the constant flow and change. Oftentimes we live retrospectively, 
or, you know, in the present moment, like something happens and then we spend a while thinking about it. Uh, there's not a few times that I've noticed that someone is talking and, um, and uh, I'm beginning to thinking about something and I realize, oh, I, don't, I didn't hear what they were saying for a while. Because, and it, it happens the most for me, occasionally, I hope, um, when I'm on, um, on Zoom especially with a group of people. You know, somehow I think about something, I've gotten distracted or something's happened and I'm in my world of thinking. And, um, <clears throat> and so I'm not there as it's occurring. Maybe someone said something and now I find myself reflecting on it and I'm in the, now I'm lingering in the past. But this ability to really stay here in the present moment is, um, is where we see Insight. That's the kind of the key thing about this vipassana practice we do, is to not just see what's happening, uh, not just see what's here, but to see it as it's happening. And you can't see it as it's happening if we're living in the constructs the mind makes, the concepts it lives in. If you see a river going by, and you just think, that's a river, uh, and you live in the concept of the river, you might not notice what the river is. It's constantly flowing. You can kind of get into your head, oh, that's a river, maybe I should go swimming in it, I didn't bring a bathing suit, I don't have a bathing suit, where am I going to get a bathing suit? It'd be great to go in the river. Yeah, I bet it's nice and comfortable, I love swimming, I'm such a great swimmer. And and we're living in a world that we're making up, in a sense, of thought, and we've lost touch with the actual experience of the river. We're relating to it, but now it's relating through the conceptual mind, the story-making mind. And so, but to really be in the experience of the river, what you'll see is the river is constantly flowing. And that's a very different way of experiencing a river than all the stories we're making up around it. And we're doing vipassana, that's where we kind of want to try to rest in, uh, especially in meditation, is in the as things occur, as things are happening. This is where we have insight. So then the Buddha goes on and he says in the poem, um, not faltering and not agitated, knowing this develop the mind. So this is not just simply to be in the present moment for the present moment's sake, but we're actually learning to develop ourselves to become a stronger mind, clearer mind, uh, more centered mind, more receptive mind. There's all kinds of ways the mind gets developed And as it does so, the qualitative way in which we can live our life now, be attentive and be present, changes. So that as the quality of the mind increases, then uh, we're able to move closer and closer to a time when we know what to let go of so we can be at peace in this world, in the moment as it's occurring. Even if it's our last day, last minutes of life, we know how to be peaceful. We know this is what's possible. And so the Buddha, in his explanation of this text, then he, he explains what he means by not faltering. And, um, <clears throat> and to um, not falter <clears throat> is, <clears throat> is as things are occurring in the present moment, uh, we don't um, make a self in relationship to it. So as, for example... <clears throat> things appear, 
our, our appearances are there, say, say sensations are there, our thoughts are there. Um, I saw that in my mind as I was meditating today. You know, I sat down to meditate, and, um, and I could see for a while, in the first, I don't know, few minutes, I could see that I was uh, teetering back and forth between being my thoughts and knowing that I was thinking. And I could easily slip back into just being my thoughts. So in a sense, I am my thinking, because that, that's where kind of I was a living. And then as I was settling, I could see, see you, know, I, you know, I could know that my mind was thinking. I was thinking, I was like, kind of like, I was kind of like, the image I had was I was kind of looking up into my mind, saying, oh, my, the mind is thinking a lot. And that was a much better place to be. It was kind of interesting. Oh, my mind is thinking, look at that. It's like this, you know, the radio's on. As opposed to getting swept into the, the radio and kind of believing I'm the, I don't know what, I'm the, I'm the, I'm the thoughts. <clears throat> and so, uh, so you can believe, uh, for your, your thinking, you know, I am my thoughts. You can believe the thoughts are part of me. Thoughts are in me. Uh, the, uh, um, the thought, you know, there's all these uh, senses of self we create in relationship to our thoughts, to our feelings, to our perceptions, to our thought ideas, to our con- being conscious. And again, it's a made-up mind. It's a constructive, creative mind. And for the Buddha, this idea that we create a self, an identity around it, um, is different than having an identity. So, you know, some of us have identities which are obvious to some of us, uh, at least to ourselves, and that we kind of need to have it. Uh, you know, we, we find certain parts of the world we need to kind of uh, behave accordingly, according to our identity. Some, some are role identities, some are gender identities. It used to be they had male and female bathrooms. And, um, and once upon a time, by mistake, I went into the women's bathroom. This was not a good thing. And um, no one saw me, but I realized when I walked out that, uh, uh-oh, I could have gotten in big trouble for this. So you're supposed to kind of behave, you know, know, know certain things about the identity. But so, so, so some of it we're born with in all kinds of ways, but some of it is made up. Um, so if my, I'm, you know, an identity I kind of have, especially sitting here giving a Dharma talk, is... Um, I'm a Buddhist teacher. So it's okay. I think you're, you're kind of going along with it, so it's okay for now. <laughs> it, has a pur- it has a purpose. But I, when I go home, <laughs> my wife and my kids, guess what identity is no longer relevant? <laughs> Once upon a minute, tw- 25 years ago, when I started to teach, I came home to my wife, we were talking, and she stopped me and said, Gil, you're using that voice. <laughs> I was using the teacher voice for her. You know, that's not the place to be a teacher, right? So, so sometimes we get in trouble. We have these identities, but we use them inappropriately. We hold on to them. We get attached to them. Some identities are, are value judgments. I'm a lousy person. I'm a bad person. I'm a right, good person. I'm the best person. I'm this kind of person, you know. And so we live in these values of ourselves. And some people, it's tremendously heavy the weight they carry, the negative identities they're holding for themselves. You know, I'm, um, 
I mean, for me, you know, some, some of you heard this before, when I was in my 20s, I thought that the uh, gill was short for guilt. Because uh, I, 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 I didn't have to do anything to be guilty. I, I just was. And if I did something, then I was guilty. But I didn't, you know, like, I remember seeing it really clearly. This is where I, it was by doing meditation practice that I saw it so clearly. Uh, because uh, I was walking across the meditation hall, hall floor when people are meditating. And just walking across the floor, I was guilty. I mean, what am I guilty for? I'm not just walking, you know. But it was such a strong tendency of mine. So the identity of being the guilty one was strong for me. So I'd taken on that burden, that kind of identity. So for the Buddha, not faltering is not to take on, make up, and live in these made-up identities and be attached to them. The attachment to self is a problem. The attachment to seeing how this works, to being in the present moment, moment moment, seeing things as they occur, seeing how attachments occur, to see the arising of a story, the arising of a made-up idea. Oh, here it's occurring. And this is one of the values of really being present as things are occurring, is you have a better chance to notice when we start making up stories, making up identities, making up these things that we're living in. And then we can put a question mark next to it. Is this really useful? Is this true? Maybe I don't need to do this. So you trading one attachment for another, a painful one that's painful for you and sometimes for others, for an attachment which is the opposite, is one's beneficial, develops the mind. Not faltering, not getting hung up, not agitated. Identity that we make up trips people up it makes people agitated. And you can see it a little bit, some of us, some of you maybe, um, if, uh, uh, if people either praise you or condemn you, I bet you either falter or get agitated. If you get praised, the agitation is kind of a good agitation. It feels good, wow. I mean, if they criticize you, it's like a bad agitation, or you're faltering, you know, oh, now that I have this, now that I'm so great, I have to keep it up. <laughs> and then we're tripped up, we, we tripped up or something. So, uh, so this power of this mindfulness practice is that of cutting through the ways we get caught in identity and concepts in this made-up world that's actually much bigger part of our life than most people realize. And so it's, to develop, develop the mind is to have this clear capacity for insight, this clear ability to name and see and see through it. And, and for what purpose? So we can relax. Relax deeply. Deep enough to experience a deep abiding sense of peace. Ardently do what should be done today. Who knows, death may come tomorrow. There's no bargaining with mortality and death's great army. Since there's no bargaining, no escaping death, for the Buddhist point of view, this is what's worth doing. This moment, this minute, this time, this day, is when we have our lived life. Live it fully, but not greedily, like live it fully to have, you know, by going to Disneyland or something. Uh, live it fully by waking up, being really present, 
for the lived moment. The lived moment is more exciting than Disneyland. Whoever lives thus ardent, active day and night, is, says the peaceful sage, one who has an auspicious day. So, this is the Vipassana anthem. If, uh, we know that the Buddha encouraged people to memorize it. Maybe you'll memorize it. And, uh, and uh, so, those are my, my thoughts for today. So do you have any comments you'd like to make or any questions about this? Or anything else? Good morning. Um, so this is a somewhat minor piece of what you were talking about, but you mentioned sometimes, especially on Zoom, you're, somebody's talking and then you're thinking about some reflecting on something else that they said or whatever it is, getting distracted by some thoughts. And I, I just wonder in those situations, like sometimes is it skillful to just try to slow the conversation down too? Because I notice sometimes for me it's hard because maybe that reflection needed some time to, maybe it was an important reflection and then the conversation is just moving on. And yeah, do you, does that make sense? It makes a lot of sense, and if you, and uh, for you to be tracking yourself well enough to know what you need in order to participate in the conversation is a really important uh, skill to have. And whether it's appropriate to ask for things to slow down or not for you, uh, it depends whether it's one-on-one and you're talking about something really important interpersonally, uh, that's completely good. Or, or I've been involved in conversations where someone is moving on very quickly and I said we have to make an important decision or something and I've specifically asked sometimes can we slow down I need to track this much better and uh, can we go over this again or something can you can you repeat this what you said so I think that's a, a really useful skill uh, when to do it and when not to it you know if it's a you know if it's a, you know that big conference with a thousand people there um, and uh, and to ask the persons presenting, say it's not nonsense, it's really good, to ask them to slow down for your sake, and you're one out of a thousand people, might be a disservice to everyone else, make, makes the whole thing more difficult for everyone else. So you have to kind of, you know, understand the context, situation, but I love it that you're asking this, and that's there are times when that's really healthy. That's that Good. And then hopefully the people you're with appreciate that because, you know, that's part of the context. You say, you know, can, you, can we slow down? And that person doesn't have the ability for that or doesn't somehow or 
takes it too personally, like they've done something wrong, and it just makes the whole situation more difficult than it had to be. So it's understanding context is such an important part of living a wise life. Yeah, I mean, I think maybe one more piece that I'm reflecting on is maybe sometimes I need to take care of it in some way, like write down a quick note or something about an insight that I had so that I can not keep turning on it and then be able to return to what's happening now because it's not the appropriate time. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, some things, I've done a few things to help me be present. Sometimes I have taken notes as I listen, uh, if there's a long presentation, um, because taking notes, I don't, need, I don't really need to take notes, but by taking notes, I stay present more actively, and I'm not less likely to wander off. And the other thing I uh, do is I make sure I sit straight with, on Zoom, if, uh, because if I kind of relax and sit back... I'm more likely to, my mind's more likely not to be present fully for the experience, to track it. Hi, thank you for the talk. Somehow I find it though um, a little bit remote from the reality, as if we're living in this paradise where everybody's peaceful and, you know, there's no problems, no protest, no nothing like this. So it feels a little bit um, theoretical, perhaps, uh-huh. and makes me wonder, like, have uh, you ever participated in any sort of protest? In what? Protest, like protesting against something. Yeah. And how would that go? And I guess I would like to hear some some sort of like example of how to do more of a peaceful protest, perhaps. Like, you know, the world is full of problems and we do not live in the, like, you know, paradise, so so to speak. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, very much so. But um, I think that uh, what it's inspired to do is to kind of put it back on you that... um, you're not, if, if you think we live in paradise here in Silicon Valley, uh, you're not looking. Uh, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying the opposite, actually. Listening to this poem, yeah. it's great. I mean, it feels to me that it would be great to follow this poem if we were living in paradise. But unfortunately, we're not living in paradise. And thus, this prioritizing this peaceful being and stuff like that that just seems to be like like some sort of some sort of fairy tale i guess oh, I see. do you see what i'm saying i understand what you're saying but i don't it's, i don't see the logic of it uh-huh. because in my logic that if you can do this if if you can try, if you can really be present enough to watch how you construct your reality your life then you can be peaceful in the middle of conflict you can then you can you're much better positioned to be able to do things wisely when things are really difficult and challenging. It's the people who don't know themselves well and don't can't track their reactions, their responses internally, who when there's conflict and difficulty, even if they go to a protest, they're peaceful for a while, but then the, someone kind of yells, you know, you're crazy protesting, and they're and before they know it, they're punching the person out. They've they're suddenly reactive. So I think that this here is a recipe for responsible engagement in the world and the challenges. And I'm, you know, I'm staking my life not on the making people kind of, uh, you know, some kind of uh, retired enlightenment that they just sit and 
stay home and do Wordle. <laughs> but I want you know I want this practice to be one that makes people change agents for for a peaceful world. And, okay. and right here in Silicon Valley, I mean, there's, a, there's like a, a fifth of the people here in Silicon Valley are hungry. That's a big. That's a very high percentage. Go go visit Second Harvest, and they're they're they're, they're one of the premier organizations that in the, here that are a nonprofit that's uh, trying to bring food to the hungry, and there's a huge population of people who they're uh, feeding. So it's right here, close by. Thank you. You have time for one more thought? Yeah. Um, I, I get what you were saying. I, I thought that was an astute observation um, about the practicality of this this very um, wise uh, poem. And it just dawned on me there's a real-world example um, that's been unfolding globally, right, for the past, I don't know, nine months. It's, and I, I appreciate what you were saying, Gil, about us being creative beings, we are talking a recession into existence. Why? Right? Maybe we should be talking something else into existence. Mm-hmm. But it's becoming, well, I don't believe it, but others believe it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. A recession's coming, a recession's coming. Why don't we all collectively try to think of the opposite, or maybe think of nothing, and then see what happens? So I yeah. just found this to be a very timely yeah, yeah, I poem think that, that you've shared. Yeah, there's so many things that we actually think into existence, that much more than people realize that, uh, uh, <clears throat> you know, we live, we, it's, uh, th- some things are, uh, are self-fulfilling prophecies. And so if we believe certain things, then we, everything organizes around that, and so it becomes true. And, um, and I've known people who I've seen who are, aversive people and very angry and uh, so and they have this idea that everyone else is out to get them everyone else is mean but so they but they're more angry but then when they go someplace they have this this atmosphere of anger around them and then people are treating them unkindly and so it's fulfilling the very things that they're afraid of or they want so so the power of this creative mind is quite something so this practice of you know uh, clearly see phenomena anywhere they appear. Just really be present. Phenomena means as your experiences are happening, as your inner life gets born, to really see it clearly is such a relief. It's so needed for our society. Um, you know, it's a, uh, you know, I've put a tremendous amount of hope in having people become healthy in this way. Great. So... May you have an auspicious day. <laughs> Thank you very much. And um, if you want to stay around a little bit and say hello to each other, maybe you can say hello to the person next to you and then say goodbye. Or, but uh, it's nice to have a little bit of community.